Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com slash consulting. IBM, let's create. Part of the power and almost a pernicious part of the power of a father's influence on his son, or at least my dad's influence on me, is that the drive to do better never recedes. It is just a nonstop part of my consciousness. So there's never a, a victory achieved banner that I can stand in front of. It's never done. And it's from the public part of life, running for office or holding office. And it's the private part of life, making that run every single morning to stay in shape and engaged and alive and vital. That was Beto O'Rourke. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. you're safe, sheltered, and self-isolated in this time. Uh, I am currently recording this intro from inside a closet, and yes, it feels as silly as it sounds. But on a positive note, we have been doing this podcast almost to the date for four years now. And in our run of doing 160 plus episodes, we have had a grand total of zero politicians on this program. And it's not for a lack of trying, by the way. Let me be clear. Uh, We have tried, we have called, we have emailed, we have begged and pleaded. I think even once I busted out the typewriter for a heartfelt letter, uh, this is a roundabout way of saying that I am honored and humbled to have on Beto O'Rourke today. As you may remember, he was a 2020 presidential candidate for the Democratic Party after 
narrowly losing this historic Senate race against Ted Cruz down in Texas. Before that, he was a congressman from Texas's 16th district. I imagine many of you listening know all this information. So let me give you some backstory. This episode was really a couple years in the making. In 2018, I directed this short film about my grandfather, Sebastian, who immigrated from Mexico to America in 1948. This film came on the heels of President Trump uh, suggesting some of the Mexicans coming to this country were criminals and rapists. This came after his rampant xenophobia, and most importantly, this came after his insistence on building a wall that Mexico would be paying for. In case you are still wondering, Mexico did not pay for that wall. The film I made was actually more personal than political, but sometimes the politic finds you. And ultimately, after sending Sebastian his way, Beto found me and my grandfather's story. He was encouraging and generous about the project, and this speaks to the kind of person I believe Beto to be. Whether you disagree with his politics or not, um, he is someone in this circus for the right reasons. He's in it for people. And I mean all people, by the way, even those who vehemently disagree with him. He has this uncanny ability to listen to anyone willing to engage with him. And I got to say, whether you're a politician or not, that is a quality I admire in someone. So this is a special episode for me and for this podcast. And I hope as we collectively take stock of our lives in the weeks and months ahead, that this conversation helps you ask some of those big questions I know we're batting around. Or maybe this talk just makes you feel uh, a little less bored, a little less alone. Whatever it does, I thank you for being here and making us part of your week. Now, here is Beto O'Rourke. Beto, uh, thank you so much for being here. As you know, I do some research for these podcasts. And right before we started recording, I noticed uh, online that you launched your presidential campaign almost exactly a year ago to the date. Does it feel like a year ago? It doesn't. It, it, I saw that on Twitter yesterday. Somebody said, I think yesterday it was a year to the day that we officially kicked it off in El Paso, in Houston, and in Austin on the same day. Um, we did big events in those three cities. And it was hard to believe. It feels like a lifetime ago. I was in a different place. The country was in a different place. You know, our family was in a different place. And the actual presidential campaign itself felt in some ways so long. I mean, in the most meaningful way, it was over far too quickly. But in terms of the work and the effort and the strain and everything that was involved in, in running that campaign, it felt like forever. And so that might be why it feels like it happened so long ago. So no, it's really hard for me to, to get my head around that. <laughs> that really does feel like a lifetime ago. Uh, granted, I think two weeks feels like two years right about now. So while we're here talking and reflecting in this quarantine, 
I wanted to start back in 1987. At the time, you were 14 years old and desperate to leave El Paso, Texas. There's this quote where you said, I want it out. I want it out of the house and away from him and his shadow. The him being your father, Pat O'Rourke. What did your teenage self look like at that time? It wasn't necessarily um, a pretty sight. So I was this extremely awkward, tall, skinny, gangly kid who did not necessarily fit in to the social structures that were in place in El Paso or at El Paso High or with the group of friends that I'd been hanging out with since elementary school at, at Mesita. I was somewhat athletic in that I was a runner, um, was on the cross-country team. I was absolutely unathletic in that I tried to play basketball and was on the eighth grade El Paso High basketball team and was just the worst basketball player that you've ever seen, despite my height and the potential that the coaches kept trying to see in me. Just an um, absolute waste of height right there. I mean, my totally. God. And, and my kids... <laughs> Uh, all of whom are so much better at basketball than I ever was, and certainly than I am now, can can confirm that I did not lose that awkwardness on the court. I just, I just don't have it. So th- there was also these social changes taking place. You know, as you grow up and um, people start to party, and in El Paso, it was an interesting dynamic because everybody crosses the border to go party in Ciudad Juarez, where there is functionally, or at least there wasn't at the time, a drinking age. So you're 14, you're 15, you're 16 years old, and you know, you're know you drinking beer and hanging out with girls and boys. And and I just could not get into that at all. And in fact, I went exactly the opposite direction. I, I got really into this kind of straight edge scene ordered records out of a catalog of Minor Threat and Seven Seconds and these other um, hardcore straight-edge bands, which made me feel a little bit less alone and a little less weird. And when I discovered there was a punk rock scene in El Paso where there were other kids who were seemingly as weird and strange and as fucked up as as I was, I, I suddenly felt like I was at home or there was a a community that I could be a part of. And I cannot tell you how extraordinary that feeling and that experience was to be, um, you know, kind of isolated and and feeling like I completely did not fit in so awkward and kind of alone to be accepted into this group of other misfits who, by the way, beyond the social dynamic of these punk rock shows and gatherings, There were people my age who were making music. They were writing their own songs and they were pressing their own records and they were starting their own labels and they were booking their own tours. And it was incredibly heady stuff. Like, holy shit, like um, they found the keys. Uh, you, You don't just have to take what's given to you. You don't have to play the role that's been assigned to you. You don't have to listen to the commercial stuff, the safe stuff coming off the the radio or passing through your TV. There's this whole underside to life that's absolutely beautiful and it's not safe and it's not sanitized and your parents would not approve. And it's incredibly exciting and interesting. And so that was a big moment for me growing up in El Paso. You know, 
when you go to Woodbury Forest School, which is a boarding school in Virginia, uh, you have a yearbook page, as we all do. And uh, do you remember the quote you had from the band Rites of Spring in your yearbook page? I kind of do. I remember that I quoted Rites of Spring. I haven't seen it since 1991, but you you read it to me. Okay. Uh, The lyric is, I found a hidden wheel and it rolls to reveal that I'm the angry son. I'm the angry son. Can I ask you, what were you angry about? (laughs) Um, Well, first of all, I'm 18 years old, so... Everything. um, Yeah, so everything. (laughs) You know, my parents, society, Ronald Reagan, the direction that this country is, is taking. I had done this independent study class at Woodbury Forest which was uh, amazing. I had this, uh, the faculty and staff and teachers were life-saving and life-changing for me, though the environment at the school uh, was, you know, in some ways almost life-ending. And I don't mean that literally, but here, here I was in a all-boys school uh, deep in, in the South, where for some, the Confederacy never ended. Um, feeling more awkward and estranged than I ever did at, at El Paso High or in El Paso. But these teachers and faculty and the staff there unlocked whole new worlds for me. And there's this one who led me in independent study of the CIA overthrow of the legitimately elected Guatemalan administration of Jacob Arbenz Guzman in the 1950s. And discovering that, that that we, for the interests of the United Fruit Company and the Dulles Brothers and our desire, our paranoid desire to contain or defend the Western Hemisphere against communism, overthrew this government and sent that country into a shit spiral that they have not yet recovered from, that pissed me off. Uh, I subscribed to the Washington Post, read that every day. That made me uh, angry. I was listening to punk rock records. Um, hadn't figured out my relationship with my dad, who was this incredibly amazing, gregarious, and yet in our home, overbearing figure um, who set such high standards and expectations for me and my sisters that were really hard to achieve and I think bred a lot of resentment Um you know, that and the fact that Rites of Spring were my favorite band, mm-hmm. and I love that song so much, all, all hit home and produced that yearbook page that you just quoted from. Did your dad know that your relationship with him was not totally healthy? Yeah. Um, you know, I've gone back and I've thought about our relationship, and you mentioned time at home can produce an opportunity for self-reflection and going through, you know, these boxes of photographs and letters and journal entries. And some of them are letters from my dad. And some of them are letters that he wrote to me when I was at this boarding school in Virginia, where I sought to escape him and, you know, maybe find something new in, in life. And I can tell in the letters, they're, they're all very brief. They're never longer than a page that he loves me that he's thinking about me, that he's probably worried about me. You know, if if I thought I was strange and a little bit of a weirdo or a lot of a weirdo, I guarantee you my dad did and and could not comprehend me or what I was into or why I was so pissed off. Um, but he's trying. He's, he's trying to connect. Um, and he would continue to try. And what's really beautiful about our relationship is that as 
difficult as it was for a very long time and as strange as we had become, when I moved back to El Paso in the late 90s, um, I established a completely different and much more positive relationship with him as adults, o- almost friends in, in some way. Um, we'd go backpacking in the Gila wilderness together. We'd drink at the Cincinnati Club bar. We'd laugh about stuff. And the night before he died, um, for some reason, uh, my sisters were out of the house with my mom. So it was just my dad and me. And we were eating leftovers out of the fridge, sitting in the backyard, drinking a bottle of wine together. And we had one of the best conversations I've ever had with him or any human being for that matter for hours. And we just talked and connected and wondered about the universe and the stars above and the trajectories that our lives would take. And um, and, and in some ways it is more than I could have asked for uh, if he was going to die to have this reconnection with him and to just be with him in that way, um, which we had not been able to do for you know more than a decade before that. So that's a very special memory for me. Three years before you have that conversation uh, with your father, you move back to El Paso. You're 25 at the time, working at your mother's furniture shop. Of that period, your mom said this of you. He stuck it out for a year, but he was absolutely miserable. Does that sound about right? Oh my God, it it was the most miserable year of my life. Um, So I had been in New York for the previous eight years, going to school and then living in Brooklyn with friends and working in Manhattan and then for a little while for a publisher in the Bronx and playing music at night and playing in bars and really just having the time of my life. Um, Something had called me back to... El Paso called me back to Texas. In the immediate term, my grandfather was dying, and I knew I could be helpful in taking care of him at my grandparents' house, which I did. Um, but I didn't expect to stay for long. And I started working for my mom at Charlotte's Furniture, helping to manage the warehouse and just something I really did not have the slightest interest in. I wanted to be a writer. That's why I worked at a publishing company. Um, I wanted to create things. And this just seemed to me like the antithesis of every childhood dream and every dream I'd had as a young adult about what I was going to do in my life. Last thing you want to do is come back home and, and work for your parents. But thankfully, in hindsight, my mom took pity on me, offered me the job. And a few months into it, maybe a month into it, in fact, it was the night of my birthday. I'd been out at the Cincinnati Club with my dad, had gone home, um, had reached out to this girl that I was interested in in Las Cruces, gone and picked her up, drank way too much, and got arrested for driving under the influence, which I should have been arrested for because it was the stupidest fucking thing I've ever done in my life. But can I ask you? Yeah. In the moment, did you think it was stupid? Because I, I, I hear you telling me this, and I'm like, you know— I'll be honest, I've done the exact same thing that you did. I've done it, and I'm sure many people listening have done that once or twice or maybe more than once or twice. In the moment, did it feel dumb? No, not at all. I mean, in the moment, I probably didn't think anything. And in the moment, I felt wonderful. Um, It was my birthday. I, I had finally connected with a group of friends in El Paso, some of whom I'd gone to El Paso High with. 
there was this young woman who I was just crazy about, um, who had come out with me that night and, um, I'm at a bar and folks are buying me drinks cause it's my birthday. So no, I was feeling, I was feeling great. It, it was just, and, and in hindsight, not only should I have stopped myself, but you know, wish that there had been someone who had intervened and been like, this guy is way too loaded to go out and drive a car. But luckily no one was hurt. I spent a night in jail. Um, you're then on probation. And one of the conditions of my probation was to not only go to kind of a class to learn how not to drink and, and not to drink irresponsibly, but you also have a, a an inability to drive a car anymore for a set period of time. I don't know if it was a year or or longer. And so riding the bus every day, um, and the bus in El Paso is different than the bus or the subway in New York or the bus or the subway in many other urban parts of the country back in 1998. It it basically doesn't work. There's no guarantee that it's going to get you there on time. You have to walk probably, you know, a half mile to get to the bus stop, all of which is fine. But in my self-pitying, pathetic state as a 26-year-old guy working for his mom in in the warehouse of the furniture store, not able to understand what the hell I'm going to do with my life. It was the depth of misery to take that bus into the job, to go do something I didn't like, to wait for the bus that might come every hour to, to ride that back home. But I'll tell you what it did, Sam. It kicked me in the fucking ass and it made me realize that I, I couldn't let things happened to me. I couldn't expect things to happen for me. There was nothing that was going to come my way unless I was intentionally seeking it out and then doing the hard work to make it happen. And so what came out of that, um, within the year, I started a, a small business in internet services and website development and online software business. And then I also, perhaps just as or more importantly, started an online newspaper in El Paso, Texas in 1998 that took a very deep look at city politics, arts and culture, and the binational relationship between El Paso and Ciudad Juarez. And within a few years, that company would employ more than 20 people. Um, That newspaper would be a print publication. And uh, my life would take a, a seriously different turn. But in some way, I had to hit that what was for me a rock bottom um, for for others that might not be even close to to what they've seen when when they've bottomed out. But for me, that's what it took. Um, so yes, it was a miserable year, but it produced some really beautiful, positive things down the road. An old friend of yours named Kate Gannon said he came back to El Paso and realized he was higher apparent to Pat and not just that kid. Did it feel like? time for you to graduate into being the kind of man your father wanted you to be? I can't overstate how big of an influence my dad had on me, nor could I overstate how dominant he was in this community. He had been the El Paso County judge before that, an El Paso County commissioner, but maybe even more importantly, just a very visible public figure um, in our cities, you know, the, the policies that we adopted, the direction that we took. But he was also this gregarious Irish politician 
who is going to Jackson's for drinks at lunch, the Cincinnati club for uh, a glass of wine after work, is at every campaign event, election party, is mentoring young up-and-coming civic leaders, and is, is a trusted voice and counsel for those who are trying to figure out what they're doing. And that's, you know, current elected leaders who who call on him. So you could not go anywhere with Pat O'Rourke where he would not be recognized, where someone wouldn't want to come up and ask his advice. Um, you couldn't go anywhere where uh, someone wouldn't come up and tell me that my dad is is their best friend um, and that they love the guy. I mean, he, his magnetism, his charisma, his charm was immediate and inexplicable. I mean, beyond, he's a very smart guy, very funny guy, amazing smile, good looking guy. But beyond all of that, he just had this this magical connection with people. So yeah, that that was part of the dynamic when I came back to El Paso. I was definitely Pat O'Rourke's kid. It didn't matter if I was 25 or 26 years old. I was I was always going to be his son. And to some degree, I, I was okay with that. I, again, as an adult, began to establish a different, far more positive relationship with him, began to appreciate what he had done and really proud of, of who he was and, and the position that he held in, in our community, even though he didn't hold elected office. And I think in some ways, I'd kind of resigned myself to never really growing out from from under that. And I was in some ways okay with that, as strange as that sounds. So I mentioned to you that we started those businesses, the website and internet technology business and the newspaper. He was at my side for, for both of those, giving advice, uh, providing connections. Hey, you should call so-and-so and tell them what you're doing. I bet they would be really excited. I couldn't get a loan from a bank. And he went and got a personal loan from the bank and then lent that to me, 20,000 bucks to, to get this started. And he himself was, was constantly flirting with bankruptcy. Uh, he'd started a business that had been unsuccessful. You mentioned that he had unsuccessfully run for uh, elected office. So it wasn't as though in his personal life, he was you know, successful financially or you know, electorally, but he was devoted to me and to, to my sisters, wanted us to be successful. And, and I loved that. And I, I loved having him as a partner and as a friend and as a confidant. And that was the kind of relationship we had when, unfortunately, he was killed. The morning your father died, you are working. Uh, you get a call from your mom. What do you remember about that morning? I remember being at work in downtown El Paso and getting a call from my mom. And I just knew the second she started speaking that something was wrong. It could have been the pause between when I answered and when she said the first word. It could have been the tone in her voice, but but right away I knew something was wrong. And I think she she said something like, there's been an accident, dad is hurt. And I, I knew that he was dead. And I can't remember now if I asked her that on the phone. And it might be that she said, just just come to my office. She, um, you know, it was probably a 20-minute drive away at the store and uh, drove to go see her and to be with her. So that's that's what I remember of it. It's hard recounting it. Yeah, 
Yeah, and and we um, he had been killed in New Mexico, right on the state line with Texas. We live in this tri-state area where New Mexico, Texas, and Chihuahua, Mexico all meet. He was on the New Mexico side. And so we had to go to a hospital in Las Cruces, New Mexico. And there was a room where they keep dead bodies. And I had to go in and identify his body. And that that is almost hard for me to remember. I mean, I'm trying to actively place myself there 19 years ago and and I can't I can't totally remember that but I'll tell you this I do remember driving back to El Paso with my mom with my sister Charlotte and her husband Eric and um and somehow having this sense of my dad's presence and in a really strong way like not I remember him really well, but but he is he's here right now and and he's watching me and he's with me right now. And would have that off and on for the next few weeks, maybe not unusual for for someone who's lost somebody very close to them. Um and now 19 years later, I, I would tell you there's probably not a day that doesn't go by where he is not in some way present in my mind or in my life in a decision I'm making and something I'm thinking about, uh, something that will remind me of him in a dream that I have. And even if I can't remember those, those details, his memory is very much alive in me. The day your father died, you talked to the El Paso Times and you said um, you admired your father for fighting some battles that were unwinnable. And I was thinking about that quote. And then I started thinking about that quote for you. In the past couple years, did you feel like some of this was unwinnable for you? I never did. Um, I, I never knew that I would win. And in some ways, in fact, in the best of moments on the campaign, I felt like there was nothing to lose. I remember when my wife Amy and I decided that we'd run for U.S. Senate. This was maybe late in 2016, early in 2017 for a November 2018 election. And and I th- I really think my my wife's words were "fuck it," um, meaning <laughs> what wh- what do you have to lose? Like nobody knows who you are. You're, you're this unknown West Texas congressman with probably one or 2% name recognition across the state of Texas, you'd be going up against the runner-up to Donald Trump in the Republican presidential primary in 2016, a rock star in Republican circles, a hotshot first-term Republican U.S. Senator Ted Cruz, who has an almost cult-like following uh, amongst his most diehard fans. Um, Let's do it. And that spirit felt very much like Pat O'Rourke, very much the just, fuck it, let's let's go do this. And uh, don't tell me the odds. Uh, don't tell me whether I'm supposed to do this. Don't tell me how I'm supposed to do this. I'm just going to go out there and and do this. And the best of the Texas Senate campaign, which was a fucking extraordinary experience to be 
a part of with you know, tens of thousands of volunteers and supporters and going to all 254 counties and not knowing what the fuck we were doing for most of it, being too dumb to know that you shouldn't run against Ted Cruz, that you shouldn't run as a Democrat in a state that hasn't elected a Democrat to the United States Senate since 1988. Um, just, it, it felt like Pat O'Rourke. It felt like punk rock. It felt so good. Not that it wasn't hard and excruciating and terrifying at times because it was all of those things as well. Um, but I never once thought that I couldn't win. Um, it was more a, a function of having nothing to lose. And there was a very different dynamic in the presidential campaign where we were a presumptive, if not the front runner, than a, a potential front runner, where we were able to uh, command widespread name recognition, very high expectations, great number of donations, at least at, at the outset. Um, and, and in some ways, it came at the expense of fuck it and nothing to lose, and they'll never see us coming. Um, they saw us coming from a mile away in in that race. And yet, despite um, the start and the slog through the middle of that and the finish that was uh, so different than what I, I had hoped for and what we had all worked for, um, that too was an extraordinary experience, one that I'm very, very lucky to have been a part of, and one which at no time did I think we're going to lose this thing. Um, didn't know if we were going to win, right? Um, knew that we could, knew that it was possible, um, knew that there were some things under our control, some things absolutely out of our control. Um, but I would never put myself or my family or ask volunteers and team members to go into something if I didn't think that we could win it. You know, after that Senate run, which was uh, historic. There was such an enthusiasm for you and your political future. And there's this three-month period that I'm curious about where you're on the road and you're traveling. Uh, you're writing these dispatches uh, that your wife Amy is editing and putting up. I loved reading those. And then you're on the cover of Vanity Fair there's an interview with Oprah, which is insane. There's an HBO documentary that comes out a month later. All these things coalesce around uh, the announcement that you are running for president. And you're right, saying that people saw it coming from a mile away. I think everyone kind of felt you were going to do this. Um, I'm curious, now that we're like a year removed... And this is not NPR. This is not the New York Times. We're like, uh, you're in a basement. I'm in a closet. <laughs> like, I just, I'm, as, as just two fucking people, I just want to know, was it painful to see some of that enthusiasm turn into something else the moment you announced? Yes, it was. And one of the reasons that we gave ourselves for not running for president because it was not an easy decision, not one that we made right away. In fact, one that we made very late in the process, one that I would never advise anyone to make in, in that way. You know, presidential campaigns, they're, they're these massive undertakings where you're going to raise and spend 
tens, hundreds of, of millions of dollars if you're successful. Um, you'll have hundreds, then thousands of people on your staff. And you're running to connect with voters in a country of 330 million people. I mean, we made that decision in such a short time frame, unable to fully think through what would be involved in running that campaign, what our strategy would be um, to anticipate everything that was going to come our way. I remember being asked in the Senate campaign, and even immediately after the Senate campaign was over, would you run for president? Hell no, absolutely not. Never go through anything like this again. My family doesn't want to go through anything like this again. You said, I will not be running for president in 2020. Uh, That's about as definitive as those statements get. And I knew it. And I knew it to my core. And then you start to think about why you ran in the first place, what's happening in this country, the fact that you have kids in cages, that you've got um, a a president who is completely out of control, undermining the Constitution, imperiling the Republic, maybe forever ending any future we have as a democracy. I think about that challenge, and I think about the extraordinary campaign comprised of all these amazing people who in this beautiful grassroots punk rock fashion almost brought a sitting senator to his knees in a state where where no Democrat was ever given a, a snowball's chance. Is there a way to employ this to help save this country, to help defeat the sitting president in a way that that no one would ever expect or see coming, namely through Texas and in our 38 electoral college votes. That was that was the thinking, the magic that we got to be a part of. And I won't say the magic was me, nor did I produce it, but I certainly got to be a, a part of it. Could we help recreate some of that? Do it instead of a statewide, on a statewide basis. Do it nationally. And, and have the same ethics and, and values and, and purpose that we brought to that Senate campaign. Well, we, we obviously were unable to do that. I mean, there were aspects of it that, that matched some of the magic, and there were aspects of it that fell far short of that. But I'll tell you, in, in recounting these two campaigns to you, one of the first times that I've really thought this through, because it's in some part, these, these memories are too big or too profound or too painful, um, you know, to, to wrestle with. But running that Senate campaign as a nobody and starting in the westernmost of 254 counties and then visiting the other 253, one at a time over the course of two years, logging thousands upon thousands of miles and, um, and meeting hundreds of thousands of people, that's the way to do it. And what you just mentioned, and these are all choices that I made, accepting invitations offered by others, Oprah, Vanity Fair, the, the documentary that was made of, of the Senate campaign that premiered and then was streamed on, on HBO. You just couldn't run a campaign in that way. You couldn't show up um, disarmed and meet people disarmed, um, obviously not speaking literally, but speaking figuratively of the nobody from El Paso in the Senate campaign who just came to listen to you, to hear you, to understand you, to reflect back what he had learned as he traveled the rest of the state and to build a campaign truly comprised of the people of Texas. 
we didn't have the time. We had a different scale and scope with which to contend. And we were this thing, this this big thing. Here comes Beto. Um, watch out. He's this superstar out, out of Texas. And um, let him blow your mind. And that's not at all who I am or the campaign that I want to run. And in fact, at the outset, I tried to do my best to run the Texas campaign in Iowa. I just wanted to go to every county in Iowa. I wanted to show up. I wanted to listen to people. And I wanted to have real conversations with them. Only the problem was when we started the Texas campaign, it was literally just me. In the beginning, literally, it was me in a rental car by myself going from town to town before we we started to pick up volunteers and staff. In this one, not only do I have two people on my team who are accompanying me, there are literally 20, 30, sometimes 40 members of the press who, who are with us. In some cases, the press would outnumber the number of people who could fit into a bar or a cafe or a diner where we were holding the event. And it, it was just incredibly difficult to run the campaign that I wanted to. And, and my decision, mine alone, to essentially ignore the national press, because I was like, you know, I just want to listen to people in Iowa. I just want to talk to the people in Iowa and in New Hampshire and in Nevada and in South Carolina and these other states that we were traveling to. I don't want to talk to the anchors on MSNBC or or CNN. I don't want to talk to a national audience. I, I want to run this punk rock. I want to run this out of the van. You just couldn't do that. And it, it, in some ways, you ended up getting the worst of both worlds. You had the national press pissed off. And then ultimately, I, I would say vindictive um, until we were able to to turn that around by, you know, late summer. You had small towns where I'm showing up like as the thing with the entourage, even though I didn't invite all the press there. It just, it was really hard to get the rhythm and the flow and the campaign the way that I wanted it to be and the way that it had been so successful in, in Texas. And, you know, why did that happen? It, it all came back to, I think, decisions that I made. This is all notwithstanding an extraordinary team and amazing volunteers who, who killed themselves, worked their asses off for us. It, it, it's almost as though from the set of circumstances that you described and I'm describing, it just could not be. But to your original question, did I think that we we could win? Yes, I did, or or I wouldn't have done it. I saw you on the debate stage. I think everyone watching, you know, is surveying the candidates and seeing how they hold up. And this is something that I noticed when you were debating Ted Cruz in the Senate run. I rewatched that debate two days ago. And what's fascinating about the national debate against, you know, Bernie and, and, and Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris and Cory Booker, all these people, very smart, uh, very tactical. Ted Cruz, exceptionally tactical, sometimes almost nasty. Let's be honest sometimes very nasty. <laughs> right. You, no matter what, were unflappable in this way. You were unwilling to deploy opposition research. I'm curious, would you do that differently now? Yeah, I don't, I don't know that I would change that aspect of how I debated Ted Cruz or how I debated the rest of the Democratic presidential field. Um, you're certainly armed with a shit ton of opposition research. Um, you know, here's this vote that Bernie Sanders took in, you know, 1992. Here's this thing that Elizabeth Warren did 
10 years ago. Um, did you know this about Pete Buttigieg? He says this, but he's really that. None of that stuff felt right. The real challenge, the real enemy being Donald Trump in an extraordinary unparalleled threat to this country um, to try to chip away at these other Democrats, especially for shit that happened a long time ago, just seemed petty and beneath the moment that that we face. Um, it doesn't at all speak to the urgency that this current crisis demands. Um, and I just remember saying that to my team. Uh, we were doing debate prep one day, and we would do these mock debates. And um, they'd say, hey, there's, this, this is a great point to drop about one of your opponents. Or I might even, maybe in order to, to make everyone in the debate room happy, you know, bring out a zinger that I could nail um, one of the folks on stage with. But but when push came to shove and I was on that stage, I just, I didn't want to do it. And I would feel good about it afterwards. I wouldn't always feel good about my debate performance or or how I had done overall. But that aspect of it, I felt all right with. Um, because let's be honest, Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar, Pete Buttigieg, Andrew Yang, any of them, would be so superior to Donald Trump. And any one of them might very well be our nominee. And do we want to do anything that would in any significant way weaken or imperil our ability to come together when we need to, when we've got that nominee against Donald Trump and literally the future of this country is at stake? And so, um, you know, in some ways, your, your question poses another one, which is, am I the right kind of person to be running in a moment like this one. Um, if if I'm unwilling to make those kinds of attacks, if I'm unwilling to try to drag people or take people down in order to elevate my candidacy, do I have any business doing that? That's something for probably others who who follow this stuff and analyze this stuff and know the history of this stuff to say. But um, I've always felt better about focusing on the future, what it is I think that I can do or bring to the challenges that we face, talk about the things that are inspiring to me, and then keep the differences at at a policy level, especially when we're talking about other Democrats. You know, having been through the circus of this, what do you think we need to change about this process? <laughs> oh, we need to do a whole podcast series with 38 episodes to answer this question. I mean, <laughs> you know, the well, money. Beto, we can, we, we, we can do part two and three down the line. <laughs> there, there's so much. I, I would start with the money and the insane amount of money that is raised and spent in these campaigns. The ability for those who have an insane amount of money, I think of Tom Steyer or Mike Bloomberg, to be able to buy their way into a campaign um, to the exclusion of others who are unable to. And what does that say about our democracy and our ability to pick the person who by merit or experience or vision is is best prepared to, to lead this country? The focus on the first four states in the selection process, um, and Iowa is just one example, we, we could look at others, but a state that's 97% white just does not look like and is not representative of America. And it doesn't mean 
that Iowa does not add value to the process. They take their role of vetting these candidates who come through very seriously. And and Iowa's prominence in the order forces you into a retail style of politics which I actually enjoy and I think can be very revealing about candidates. So so there's some value to to that. But to have this one state or New Hampshire, another very white state, play such an outsized role in selecting who the nominee will be and therefore who the next president of the United States will be is is very wrong. Um, but I say this, that there's a lot of problems. And, and if you are an optimist, those problems should suggest innovations and ingenuity and solutions that someone is going to figure out. I did not. And, and that's why I'm no longer in the race for the nomination. And I don't know that, frankly, anyone did this election cycle. But uh, you may see in 2024 or 2028, someone who's been able to crack the code and is able to bypass um, the role that these early states play, is able to figure out the money dynamic of this, and is able to speak to people in a genuine, honest, unguarded way, which is what is thrilling to me about politics at its best. The canned stuff, the stuff that's read off of the teleprompter, the rehearsed attack lines, the opposition research that you referred to, fuck that stuff. It just deepens my cynicism, uh, reduces the level of inspiration that we feel about a candidate. When someone is truly themselves and, and they know who they are, they know what they want to do for the country, and they're able to connect with our fellow Americans. That's the magic. And um, it's a rare thing. And it's made more difficult by the circumstances that we just described in in our system for selecting a president. Um, but that desire to see that is still there. And I'm confident some candidate or some candidates are going to figure that out and break through. Maybe not unlike uh, we were able to do that in Texas in, in 2018, in a state that was written off or by Democrats left for dead, um, we figured out there was a way to to do this and, and we went out there and did it. So I think the same holds true for our national politics. You have to like people to be in this. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. And when you asked me about my curiosity at the outset of this interview, you know, I'm just deeply curious uh, about you now that I'm getting to know you. You obviously are are curious about me to be able to conduct such a well-researched interview, and you do that with your other subjects. So I I think in our lines of work, that is a a prerequisite. And if you don't like people, if you're not curious about them, if you don't want to know about their lives, about their struggles, about their aspirations, then you should find another line of work. I'm, I'm interested. In the Senate race, you went to all 254 counties. You then do a presidential campaign across America. There's constant traveling, like you said, media attention from all over, Um, people demanding your attention, vying for potential future jobs, asking you to consider X policy and this policy. And I realized this is a job you do on behalf of people, for people. And yet it feels like the more successful you get, the farther away you may be from those people. Have you reconciled with that? Yeah, I think you're really getting to one of the great challenges of these national campaigns. 
Um, I saw Mike Bloomberg when he was still a candidate. He came to El Paso, for which I'm grateful because typically nobody comes to El Paso. And that really meant something to us. And so went out to see his speech. And he's speaking from a podium. And he's got, you know, a glass teleprompter on either side of the podium from which he can read. There's then a perimeter um, of six feet from the stage, maybe eight feet before you get the first person who's been seated. And there's, of course, people arranged and kind of um, bleacher seating behind him into the sides for the optimum, you know, camera shot. And, and what he's doing is just emblematic of American politics today, especially at a national level. He's there with people, but he's not really there with with people. Um, there, there's no touching. There's no connection. There's no ability for anybody to get up in his face and say, I love you, or I'm pissed off at you, or have you thought about this? Or here's a letter. Um, I need you to read this because my grandson's life is on the line. We consciously during the campaign avoided that kind of separation, never spoke from a podium ever, never read a single word that had been written for me by myself or or anyone else, always spoke, um, you know, impromptu. I might think through what it is I want to say. I might jot down some points that I'd like to make, uh, almost always invariably held the meeting as a town hall. So I'd say what was on my mind and I'd have to hear what was on yours. And and very often it might be critical or it may be a question that would stump me. And I'd say, you know what? Great question, Sam. Have no clue. Let me, let me think about it. Um, let me do some research and then let me get back to you. And also invariably, I'd always build in time either before or after just to be with people. So if you wanted to take a picture, well, great, we'll take a picture. But more importantly, if you want to share something with me directly that you were embarrassed or afraid to share with with everyone in the room, um, come up and do it. I remember being in Las Vegas, and after the town hall, this woman came up with her daughter. Her name was Gina, and her daughter's Summer. And uh, and Gina says, one question for you. Why is it illegal to live in your car in Las Vegas? And I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, yeah, it's illegal. And I don't have enough to afford rent. The cheapest apartment I can find is like 1800 bucks. And you have to have a full month's rent as a deposit. And I'm working three jobs, basically Uber and DoorDash and one other delivery job. And my adult daughter is disabled. And I also take care of her. And so the only way we can make ends meet is for me to do these jobs, take care of her and live in the car. And it's illegal. Um, so what are you going to do about it? And the reason I remember her name and the name of her daughter and the reason I remember her question was it just fucking knocked me so hard that she didn't ask me, why can I not afford a home? Why the fuck am I paid a sub livable wage in, in three different jobs? Why am I playing by the rules and, and yet I'm barely hanging on? Why are there no support services for my disabled daughter. It was just like, why can I just not live in my car? And meeting her, that became this spur literally every day thereafter. If I was ever tempted to feel sorry for myself or get down about things or wonder whether I'm I'm doing the right thing, I would think about Gina and Summer. They are counting on us to figure this stuff out. And there are, you know, thousands of Gina's and Summer's that I met over, over the course of that. But 
You're right. I mentioned that that media circus that surrounds you, the kind of um, kabuki theater that political events can descend into, where where people are kind of miming their parts or you know reciting parts that are that are rehearsed. Um, what you're looking for is transcendence. What you're looking for is to break through to a human to human connection, which gets back to your question about you have to have a fundamental curiosity about people and their lives and how they can be made better, or else you have no business being involved in politics. We're living through, you know, a profoundly dark and precarious time in this country for many reasons, you know, chief among them health um, and politics. And I I just want to know, where are you finding hope these days? I think you have to actively seek it out and look for it and put yourself in a position where you're going to find it. One of the best moments I've had since we've been under lockdown or, or shelter in place was when we went to the local food bank, which despite shelter in place and perhaps because of it is even more desperate for volunteers, all of whom have to maintain a six foot plus distance, wash their hands, wear gloves, but needed to pack the boxes of food that will be distributed to people who depend on it now more than ever because they've lost their jobs, they can't make ends meet, they can't feed themselves and their families. We were there at a time that the line to pick up food stretched two miles long. And the person who was in the box assembly line next to me um, is a young woman named Victoria. She's, I would guess, 18 or 19 years old, a student at the University of Texas at El Paso. And on top of that, uh, works at Sam's Club, this discount grocery store, as a cashier, where she told me she's unable to keep the six-foot distance, at least at the time, from you know the customers who are coming through. But she needs the money to be able to pay for her education. And she also knows that people need the groceries. And so she wants to be there. And what struck me and what I was so inspired by and why I have hope is that here she is on her very limited time off where she's not in school or studying or at work or with her family. And she's volunteering to help people who have no ability to buy food, get the nutrition and calories that they need to survive. And I, I just, it just hit me if there are people like Victoria in the world, um, we're going to be okay. Um, because I think especially her generation, I guess Generation Z, so often get discounted or, or written off or blown off as um, self-serving or self-focused or uninterested in the world or, or making things better. And she gives a lie to that and, and defies every prediction we have about her generation. And as a reminder that at every moment of crisis in this country's history, it's always been people like Victoria and generations like hers that have come through for us when it matters the most. And so um, that, that's that been inspiring to me. Uh, meeting other volunteers um, who are packing those boxes or distributing them to the cars that are waiting. Meeting some of the people in those cars. I was on the distribution line as well. And, you know, seeing people in in their scrubs, nurses who just left a shift, who may have a, a partner or spouse who lost their job and so they need to come to the food bank or folks in their McDonald's uniforms working full-time jobs um, but not making a, enough to feed themselves, though they work at a restaurant that is kicking off billions of dollars 
in in profit. I can get pissed off. I can get angry. And I'm both of those things at the injustice that I see. But I'm also so blown away, inspired, impressed, and made hopeful by the good people who persevere despite that and who endeavor to change the conditions that we have in this country right now. And so that makes me, at the end of the day, optimistic and hopeful that not only will we get through this pandemic, but we will make those things right that scream out to us, especially at this moment when everything is laid bare. So um, that was my most recent brush with with hope. It was Victoria. It feels like you have more faith in people than you do the Democratic Party. <laughs> um, well, I think that's a fair thing to say, and and I don't I don't have any anything negative to say about the Democratic Party. But um, one of the things that struck me in the Texas campaign in 2017 and 2018, you know, we would go into these counties that voted for Donald Trump 95% in, in 2016. And yet people, whether they were Democrat or Republicans, were unfailingly kind and nice and welcoming and grateful that we had taken the time to come to their community. And very often when you got down to it, the things that were most important to them were the things that are most important to me and my family. They may see a different way to approach the solution. We may surprise each other and find that we actually have the same approach to the solution. We just label ourselves differently. Uh, you as a Republican, me as a Democrat. Um, and I've just found it so helpful when you can break down those barriers or those labels or those definitions or those divides and just get to the important stuff. Um, and um, I think sometimes party does stand in the way, but I'll, I'll tell you, I'm proud to be a Democrat, never more so than at this moment when um, we face a, a president of the opposing party who is a monster um, and who has turned the GOP really into a cult of personality. When Donald Trump enjoys a 94% approval rating, despite inviting foreign participation in our elections, despite caging kids, despite the deaths of seven kids in our custody and care on the U.S.-Mexico border, despite um, describing immigrants as infestations or invasions or inspiring the massacre that took place in El Paso on August 3rd, where a gunman walked in with an AK-47 and killed in cold blood 22 human beings for no other crime than the color of their skin or their country of national origin, then I want the Democratic Party to, to be successful. And I want to do everything I can to do that. But I don't want to lose sight um, or stop listening to people who call themselves Republican or don't define themselves by a, a partisan label. I think if this country is going to make it, if we're going to heal, if we're going to achieve the ambitious goals we all have, then we've got to be able to um, transcend those, those barriers, those definitions, those labels. You are going to turn 48 this year. Something called midlife, I think, is what it is. What are you thinking for yourself in the years ahead? What do you want? You know, the first thing that came to mind when you asked the question uh, was my health and my ability to stay in shape. Um, I'm running almost every morning. I'll run four or five days in a row, and I'll take a day off, and then I'll run the next four or five days in a row. And I'm running in the... Franklin Mountains, which is our part of the Rocky Mountain chain here in, in El Paso. And so you will start at an elevation of 4,000 feet and I'll climb, you know, a few hundred feet and, um, and it's a tough run, but I'm conscious of, of 
making that effort every day because I don't want to get old for my kids, if if that makes sense. I, I want to be able to, as badly as I play basketball, and there's no one who plays it worse than I do, I still want to be able to play in the driveway with Ulysses and Henry and Molly, as we did this morning. Um, I want to be around for as long as I can. My dad died in his 50s. His dad died in his 50s. His dad died in his 50s. I want to be the O'Rourke that that breaks the the cycle and and lives to an old age to meet his grandkids and um and you know be healthy and be there for them. You know, I want to have a different relationship with my kids than my dad did with me and my sisters in not every way because he was an extraordinary dad in a lot of ways, but in in terms of of literally being there and um and that that means living to I hope an age where I can be there for them for as long as they as long as they need me, and then I just I I just so love this country, and and understand I think the peril that we face that is unparalleled at least in my lifetime. I think you you really do have to go back to you know World War II or the Great Depression or maybe the Civil War to find a crisis like this one. And and I want to do whatever it takes in whatever capacity I possess to help this country come through. And I think it's a very open question right now as to whether or not we are going to make it or whether if we do make it, we will remain a republic or a democracy or the institutions that we've counted on and probably, at least I'll speak for myself, taken for granted are going to survive this presidency and and this moment. Um, and so I, I don't know what that means. I don't know if it is running for office again somewhere down the road. I don't know if it is supporting others who run for office. Um, I don't know if it's being civically engaged in my hometown of El Paso. Uh, but but whatever form it takes, I just wholeheartedly believe that in a democracy, there are no sidelines. You don't get to sit it out. Um, part of the price you pay for this wonderful gift of citizenship in, in the greatest democracy on the planet is being actively involved and engaged. And so um, I want to continue to do that. I don't know what that will look like, but that's my commitment. Um, in the Odyssey, uh, which is a piece of literature that means a great deal to you, there is a line, uh, few sons are like their fathers, most are worse, few better. There's another line, and I'm paraphrasing, um, but who really knows their father? Um, I, you know what it's Sam, that's why you're so good at this. I, I, it's just one of the most profound questions. Um, I don't know if you've ever read Turgenev's fathers and sons, but, um, this idea, and maybe is the same for you and, and your father for any man and, and his father, um, this idea of how you compare to your dad and whether you've lived to his expectations or exceeded them, whether as the father of two sons, um, whether, you know, I'm setting unrealistic expectations or whether there's some shadow that I'm creating um, from which they'll have to emerge and and what I can do um, better than my dad did and what I hope my kids will do better for their kids than, than I've done for them. That's something that preoccupies me. And, and then it's a different dynamic again with my daughter, you know, a different kind of relationship, just as important, just different. Um, yeah, I mentioned earlier, there's, there's not a day that 
goes by that I don't think about my dad. And I often wonder what he would think of all of this. And I, I, you know, can't help but think he would just fucking love so much of this, um, be excited. I think he'd be, he'd be proud. Um, and I think our, our most sincerest, deeply held wish as parents is that our kids do better than we've done. And I certainly hold that for my kids. I want them in whatever form that takes, right? Whether it's uh, being a visual artist, whether it's uh, being a therapist, whether it's a school teacher, whether it's a police officer, whatever that is, I want them to, to be so fulfilled and to do so well at it. And as long as they are happy in that way, then I feel like, and I, and I've, if I've been able to contribute to it, even if that means staying the fuck out of their way, then I think I will have done my job. It's funny. You, you almost mentioned my last question, uh, which is thinking about your father. You know, he was very, very critical of you at a young age. Uh, he once said, I expect you to achieve greatness in grades, in athletics, in whatever you do. And we've been reflecting on, you know, 45, 46 years of life, 10, 15 years of public life. I'm interested, now that we're in this moment, do you feel like you've lived up to his expectations? I do. Um, It's a really hard question to answer because I think part of the power and almost a pernicious part of the power of a father's influence on his son, or at least my dad's influence on me, is that the drive to do better never recedes. Um, it just, it is just a nonstop part of my consciousness. Um, so there's never a a victory achieved banner that I can stand in front of. Um, it, it's never done. And it's from the public part of life running for office or holding office. And it's the private part of life, making that run every single morning um, to stay in shape and engaged and alive and and vital. So, you know, how you calibrate that as a parent, I think is really important. And I want to make sure that for my kids, and I don't know that I do this and they'll have to tell you in 15 or 20 years, but, you know, I want them to know that they're capable of doing amazing things in their lives. I just know that to my bones. And I want to help them to achieve that. And I also want to spur them in some ways or kick them in the ass when when they need it most. And there's not a lot of kicking that that I've got to do or that Amy has to do. Um, but I want I don't want to do so much that it can in some ways make life hard for them or make them feel as though they've never achieved that. I'll just give you maybe close on just uh, an anecdote. Right before I got on with you, um, we're running the O'Rourke Home School for the Gifted here um, during shelter in place. And I teach PE. Um, I'm responsible for lunch. I teach a history class. And then Amy and I alternate between art and music. Um, So Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, she's teaching art. Tuesdays and Thursdays, I'm teaching music. Today's Tuesday. And so I had Henry for a half hour. He's my nine-year-old. And I love playing guitar. And I want to share that with him. And now I have um, a captive audience where he's in school and he has to he has to listen to me and he has to try to learn. 
and I'm teaching him to play Iron Man. First, I teach him, you know, the the all the strings and the notes on the strings and the way the the notes change and how to put his finger on the fretboard and how to make it sound the way that we want it to sound. And then I'm going to teach him Iron Man. And I could catch uh, a glimpse of my dad in both my love for Henry and also my impatience when he can't get it right the first time and um and my insistence that we we get iron man down and before we call this this lesson off so it's something as a dad that i'm i'm very conscious of and try to be thoughtful of um but knowing that in at least my dad's estimation or that drive that he instilled in me you're you're never there um, there's, there's always more to do. And there can be a very positive way to approach that in a very negative way. And I've just got to make sure that I always stay on that, on that positive track. Well, I have a sense you and Amy are doing a pretty good job and truly I'm sure your kids are going to turn out all right. And if you need to have them come on this show in 15, 20 years, they have an open invitation. Deal. Thank you so much for doing this. Really grateful to be invited to. Thank you. Thanks for the interview. Thank you. And that's our show. Special thanks this week to the team at Star City Studio and Gallery in El Paso, Texas. Pat Winston, Buddy Winston, and Eric Bozeman. I'd also like to give a special thanks to Cynthia Cano and the O'Rourke family, Amy, Ulysses, Henry, and Molly. They were all gracious enough to stay upstairs and stay quiet while their father recorded a podcast in the basement with a stranger. For that, I thank them. I'd also like to thank Beto O'Rourke for sitting with me this week. If you can afford it in these trying times, we'd really appreciate you considering a donation to the El Pasoans Fighting Hunger Food Bank. To learn more, visit their site at elpasoansfightinghunger.org, or you can visit our site at www.talkeasypod.com. Our four-year-long-back catalog, which includes talks with DeRay McKesson, Malcolm Gladwell, Gloria Steinem, Alan Alda, Rob Reiner, can be found on our website, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. For updates about our show, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. You can also join our email list by dropping us a line at TalkEasyPod at gmail.com. This show is made possible each week by our incredible team. Our executive producer is Janik Sabravo. Our associate producer is Nikki Spina. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Graphics by Ian Jones. Music by Dylan Peck and Jin Sang. Our editors are Andre Lin and Kat Owen. Our engineer is Tim Moore. And finally, the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. Next Sunday is Noam Chomsky, but before we go, um, the inimitable Bill Withers passed away this week. I can't tell you how many times I have turned to his music uh, when I really needed it over the years. I imagine some of you have done the same. 
Uh, his wisdom and his poetry will be deeply, deeply missed. And thankfully, it will live on within the margins of his music, including songs like this one. So this is I Don't Know off the album Still Bill. And uh, rest in peace, Mr. Withers. Stay safe, everyone. I'll see you next week. I get a warm, warm summer feeling Walking through the snow Even chilly darkness Has the brightest glow And I just love, love you so Sometimes I just don't know, no, no. I just don't know. I just don't know. I just don't know. I say that time just seems to help this wondrous feeling grow. Maybe I might wake up early one morning and find it isn't so. But I just love, love you so mm. Sometimes I just don't know I just don't know I just don't know I just don't know The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. 
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 